Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. This is the Addicted Mind Podcast. We are on to another episode. My guest today is Max Ezrin, and he's the founder of Youth Prevention Mentors. He's going to share his own story of struggling with addiction early in his life and getting help and how he's turned that struggle into helping other young individuals who may be struggling with addiction. Their mission is to strike addiction before addiction strikes. In this episode, Max is going to talk about mentoring young individuals who may or may not be struggling with addiction, but helping them before addiction becomes a problem and giving them the skills they need to not fall into the trap of addiction. So he shares his own experience with that and how he's turned that experience into helping others. I think very important work. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast and want to support us, please leave a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. And you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online there as well. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Max Ezrin, and he's going to share a little bit of his own story, but he's also going to talk about being the founder of Youth Prevention Mentors and its mission to actually help people before they become addicted and before they struggle with addiction. So, Max, tell me a little bit about yourself and how did this all come to be and why take on this mission? 
Sure. So I know that's a big question too. I just, but we'll get it. We'll get it. Of course, of course. I, I won't answer it all at once. But yeah, my my name is Max Ezrin. First and foremost, you know, I am an alcoholic and drug addict in recovery, and yeah. So I suppose the best way to dive into this is talking a little bit about my story, and because it all it all does tie in together. Yeah, and. You know, we aim to help young adults kind of in that age range 12 to 22. And that is where the majority of my story and struggles with addiction takes place. So it really is kind of a nod to myself, the work that we're doing or, you know, my my past self. So we'll start from the beginning. Yeah, start from the beginning and, and tell us how did addiction start to appear in your life? For sure. So... I grew up here in New York City, where I am now, and uh, loving, very loving household. Parents together did not want for anything, did not need for anything, but was certainly always somewhat drawn to a little bit of counterculture in the sense that, and I always told the story of when I was five years old in kindergarten, me and my friend were drawing stick figures, and I would always draw mine with a cigarette in his mouth. And my, my friend would always ask, you know, why why does your guy have a cigarette in his mouth? And, and in my mind, and what I told him, I said, it's because it's cool. So it's I cool. always it's thought, awesome. right, right. So I, I kind of thought that smoking and that bad boy look was cool. And I certainly tried to replicate some of that in my, in my early years. But uh, yeah, like I said, very, very loving household, went to a, a, a pretty rigorous private school here and from from the onset started to kind of have a double life in the sense where I had my obligations and things I needed to be accountable for in the sense of soccer. I was a very avid soccer player, very competitive, which is kind of part of my story. And I had school and I had family stuff. And then on the other, the flip side, I had all the things I wanted to be doing, which was attending parties and experimenting with maybe drugs and alcohol, which started at 13, 13 in, in New York City uh, is historically it's like, bar. Uh, it's, it's bar like mitzvah being season. the cool guy. Bar mitzvah season. <laughs> it's but bar I'm just thinking right. it's, it's like being the cool kid, right? You you wanted to like, you know, yes. all the way, I'm going to be the cool kid. I'm going to I'm going to do this. You want, I wanted to start experimenting or at least let it be known amongst my friends that I was one of the first people to you know pick up a drink or pick up a joint, not necessarily because I wanted to do it, but more so how it, I would be perceived. I mean, that's a big part of my story, being perceived a certain way to kind of fill the void of not being enough. Right. And, and that's that's definitely a, a trend and in, in that insecurity that I dealt with. But yes, so I would say 13 through really 18 kind of started this whole saga of making sure all of the boxes were checked off in the side of my life that was being checked on. So my soccer, my school, my family life all needed to be in order to some degree. I mean, I was certainly not a straight A student, but that allowed me to really dive into the stuff that, you know, I was curious about. And I wasn't able to partake in all of the parties and all, and, and the rest that my friends were doing because I had this soccer that I needed to be 
attending. And, and so I, I had that fear of missing out. And, and what it made me do is really double down on the substance use. So when I was able to have a night off, I would kind of go a little harder with the drinking or the smoking, you know, come 14 years old. And, and, and my addiction did progress throughout my high school year in the sense that it, it was weekend drinking and smoking come 14 years old. And I would say I tried cocaine and, and ecstasy 15 years old. And it wasn't because I needed to feel a sadness inside of me. It, it was really because I didn't feel like I was enough and that this counterculture again was something that I was so drawn to. And so go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna. I was wondering as you're saying that, like not being enough, but also that it sounds like there was a lot of pressure too at the same time. And you have this fear of missing out. You got all this pressure to be at soccer. You got all this stuff, and here are these these other people, or you make up probably. I guess you know they're having this wonderful time. They're cool. They're the cool kids. They're mm-hmm. it's awesome over there. And wow, these things I really like. Yeah, no, there was there was a lot of pressure. Uh, I certainly surrounded myself with, you know, a milieu of my best friends that were definitely pushing the limits. And, and they they didn't have the the same oversight or structure that I had. And I was definitely jealous of that. But again, a, a lot of it does come down to especially in those early years of I wanted to be a perceived a certain way, but it, it was really more I internally did not feel enough and focused on things personally that I didn't have or that thing or things that I was not. And in, instead of being grateful, of course, for all of the things that I did have or all the things that I could do. And so I found my release through drugs and alcohol. And there was certainly a... I would say a theme throughout my life where, you know, on the outside, things looked okay, but on the inside, it was pure chaos. And as we say in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, keeping your side of the street clean. My yeah. my side of the street was, was very dirty, I would say, starting around the 18 mark and when I first went to school, because when when you're in high school, you're sleeping at home most nights at least. So there was always that level of oversight and knowing, okay, I got to see mom and dad at some point, even if it's in the morning. So I need to keep some things in check and I'm going to be at school Monday through Friday. So that acted in itself as a way from things not going too far off of the rails. Granted, Friday through Sunday, it was a free for all and I was ingesting all that I could you know, I would say my addiction didn't really progress until I, you know, I had left the home and was in school in college. Right, right. And I would, I would imagine also you're describing, you had all the outside things that look good, like you're supposed to look good, right? You got this, you're playing soccer, you're going to school, you're doing all these things. Yet on the inside, you're feeling miserable. And I, 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 I bet that alone has its own problems, right? How how are you supposed to feel miserable? You have everything you need, right? You have everything. You don't even have a right to feel miserable, right? <laughs> I don't know. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and in hindsight, that's certainly the case. But 
when I was 16, 17. And right, even though right. I was, you know, living a great life on the outside and, and I can't blame myself for not being grateful because, you know, I work with now so many of, you know, the, that ilk, you're not focusing on what you have. It, it's yeah. a constant, what, yeah. what don't I have? And that issue of not being enough and, and saying, oh, well, he, she, they have this. And if I could just have that, I will be whole. But that's yeah. never the case. And yeah. and I didn't have the foresight or the ability to look inward and, and kind of focus on, you know, what's really making me feel this way and, and how is this affecting my actions? And that, and that really does kind of tie into the work that we're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So when did it start getting really bad for you where you're like, okay, yeah. this is, this is an issue. I, you know, mm. the point where you're like, I'm being forced to face this. Yeah, for sure. So I, I did get recruited to play soccer at a school called Trinity College in Connecticut. And in, in true drug addict fashion, I found a way to quit the team before preseason even started. So there I was, you know, an 18 year old kid who always had some level of structure. You know, my parents were amazing and they were lenient. You know, they let me go out and do my thing, but I had school, I had my soccer practice, I had whatever. So there was some accountability and I didn't really need to have any autonomy because there were always things in my life that were keeping me in check. Right. Fast forward right. 18 years old, I'm in college, I have no oversight, now I have no soccer. What am I to do? Well, I'm going to get high as much as possible. And that's certainly what I did coupled with the fact that I was in a school that I had no business being in, in the sense that I, the milieu there was not, you know, right. we did not share the same interests. I, I was just not a good fit for the school. And so very small social life there, not as, you know, quote unquote popular as I was in high school here in the city. So that really then fed into more of I'm not enough. And life is unfair. I need to fix this somehow. And I reached for the closest thing, which was drugs and alcohol. And what was at that point, I would say daily kind of marijuana of use through the, my senior year of high school quickly spiraled into daily marijuana use coupled with Xanax or coupled with alcohol throughout. I'll, you know, I'll kind of couple this with the four years of college, which was really chaotic, um, even though I did transfer right, schools, right. which I can get into. But I would say the four years of college was daily marijuana use, daily Xanax use. And then when I could find and use, which was harder to get at that point, was Oxycontin and ketamine. And then those big parts of my story and then my sobriety. But th those four years were really heavy on those substances and you know even less so on the drinking drinking like i right. say i say i'm a right, drug yeah. addict and alcoholic but it you know it was alcohol was not really my jam but i know yeah. you can't have one without the other and in addition to the substances i would say all of the other maladaptive behaviors came with it so right you know the mental health severely deteriorated anxiety, you know, crippling anxiety to the point where my senior year, 
I couldn't really leave my house. And yeah. if I if I could get to class, I would make sure I was, you know, so medicated and zonked it it wouldn't even matter. Right. And then you have the bounce back of, you know, Xanax and making your anxiety even worse. And mm-hmm. anxiety can, you know, when you have that intense anxiety could be so crippling. I mean, it just like can't move almost. It's so overwhelming. If you're having panic attacks, it's awful. Yeah, no, one one hundred percent, and depression also creeping in, and and I and I did see psychiatrists and and try you know a number of of antidepressants, but of course, even if the antidepressants were to be working, the the substances and the lifestyle right. I was living was never conducive to you know seeing any progress to begin with, and again, this is all in hindsight conducive to that double life I was living, where even though all of this chaos was happening, mom and dad knew nothing about it. I was scraping by in school enough to where they weren't getting letters from school saying I'm flunking out. So really compartmentalizing all these different pieces in my life that were giving me tremendous anxiety and angst um, and feeding into my addiction. But I, I had no idea how to, you know, get by without doing anything else. And I think you bring up such an important point because a lot of times addiction can look like that, that double life, right? Where, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you have this outside appearance to all these people around you, even the people that care about you, that everything's fine. And on the inside, you're just, just holding it together. You're just managing. And it's such a, it's such a hard place to be. It's such a hard space to be in in that yeah. in that way like holding those two realities and trying to to make it work and you're you're so worried that it's gonna all fall apart which it does usually anyway but yeah you know, it, it always no, you can't hold on anymore does. yeah that's spot on and you know I, I had a good run i like to say of holding it all together yeah but it, it just the the toxicity of that dynamic internally you know seeps into so many other aspects of your life where you know i was certainly you know lying stealing and cheating every step of the way in terms of working you know dealing with family dealing with school dealing with friends you know i developed other really poor maladaptive behaviors like gambling you know i, I became a gambling addict to where you know, that just yeah. fed into the substance use and the anxiety and then the depression. And it was really just this merry-go-round. And all at the same time, my side of the street is just getting dirtier and dirtier. Couldn't even, you couldn't even see the sidewalk. It was just, it was littered. And I, and I didn't know who I was, what I wanted to do, all just trying to feed this warped image of what I wanted the public to see. Yeah. But inside, yeah. completely empty. So I will fast forward kind of, by the grace of God, I make it to senior year. I walk in my graduation. I actually didn't, I didn't even go to my graduation. I graduated, but I didn't make it to my graduation because right, you know, I right. was too whacked out from the night before. And I decided it would be a great idea to go on a trip, like a graduation trip with some friends um, overseas. And that was last weekend, six years ago. Memorial Day weekend. And that that trip ended in, you know, my my four years of college was kind of littered with overdoses and and the like. And and this past weekend, six years ago, was certainly my worst overdose. Um, I I woke up in the back of an ambulance, 
apparently, I don't re- remember any of this, but we were sitting down at lunch and I collapsed. There was a doctor eating at the same restaurant. I was white. I was foaming at the mouth. And the doctor turned to my friends. He said, your friend's going to die. And wow. next thing I remember, I woke up on the back of an ambulance feeling okay. And in again, in right. true addict fashion, convinced myself, convinced my friends I had just been dehydrated that day. That's why I collapsed. It, it wasn't right. the drugs and the alcohol. And unfortunately, that was not the end of my using, but it was the beginning of the end. So I had returned back to New York City after that, and I had a, a very close friend who I grew up with and, and used with who had just gotten out of a year of treatment. And and he seemed amazing. He had a glow about him. You know, He was a year plus sober. And I was not. And so when I saw him and I saw just how happy and at peace he was with himself, I asked, thinking it was a medication he was taking, because certainly you can't feel this really good. Easy. Right. <laughs> you know, really you can't easy. Feel just give me that medication. Right. So yeah. I'm like, what are you what are you doing? What are you taking? Is it supplements? Is it this? And you know, he he very gently said, I do this thing called AA. It's you know, a group of like-minded people that get together. And, you know, I had been through some kind of mandated IOP stuff, but it wasn't really like AA. And yeah. he said, listen, I know, I know you're still using, if you're ever interested in checking out a meeting, I'm always here. And, and that was exactly what I needed because it wasn't pushy and it yeah. was really through a program of attraction, not promotion because he was living it. And I wanted that. So over the course of the next, that was end of May 2016, over the course of the next, I would say three months, my sober dates in September, I was using, I was going to meetings, I was using, I was going to meetings and I was, you know, really, really yeah. torn between what I wanted to do. I had graduated school. I had no prospect of work. I was certainly not partying like I used to in, in, in college um, where the substances kind of added to that I was using seldomly in my room and it, and it was not fun anymore but at the same time I, I could not commit so that that struggle lasted a few months until I was just I was too tired of lying to myself and lying to those around me who truly wanted me to get better so on September 24th 2016 you know I made the leap I made the leap into the program and and I, and I was very blessed to have a lot of friends and supportive people who are in the program who could hold me accountable. And I also right. think it, it, it goes to show the crew I was running around with in, in middle school and high school, as I would say about 85% of them are sober and, and got sober around the same time as me. So, you know, we were all kind of gunning for this right. path of early sobriety was coming our way. Um, and it, it got us and, and thank God it did because some of our friends were not as lucky. Um, and yeah. you know, as, as you know, this disease takes people and it does not discriminate. Yeah. And that's very, that's so, so sad. It does. And it makes it even more important to get support and, and get help. And I, and I was thinking too, as you were talking, you know, when you start to surround yourself with people who are trying to live healthy, trying to live better lives and are and are doing well. It's hard to live in the contradiction. You have to face your own 
stuff because you're you're looking at them and you're going to meetings and even if you're not using you're like wait a minute this isn't right and and it gives you some motivation to kind of say i want something different i this is this is not this is not good yeah no you're you're spot on and you know even when i got sober you know what you're just saying kind of carried through my first six months of sobriety where i was sober but I, I hadn't dived in. I kind of had one foot in, one foot out where I wasn't using, but I certainly wasn't practicing the principles in all my affairs. And it showed because I, I wasn't getting everything out of the program that, you know, I, I later did once I fully committed. So yeah, I mean, the, the first six months were, were tough. And then afterwards, it, it got easier because I committed. And that's kind of what led me to end up working in this field, which I'll get into now where by the grace of God, I was I was working in real estate and I got fired from my job, which seemed like the end of the world to me because there I was again, not knowing what I wanted to do, not having as many options as I once thought I did. And I, I, I was you know speaking to people, making sober phone calls, just getting support. And I, I had spoke to a girl who I knew worked in the recovery world. And she said, listen, you have to speak with this woman named Natasha Silverbell. She runs a sober coaching company in New York. You're young. You're relatable. I think I was 23 at the time. Meet with her. And, and even if you don't want to do this work full time, it will be something to keep you busy. And right, right, you know, you'll yeah. be able to be, be in service at the same time and helping other people. I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. I uh, didn't really know what it was. And and I met with Natasha. I got my CARC, which is a certified addiction recovery coach certification, and you know, started working with her. And she runs a a practice Silver Bell Coaching that is works with really, you know, high acuity individuals. Someone maybe coming either third, fourth, tenth rehab, who need abstinence, who need sobriety. And it's usually that twenty four seven live in support not so much, you know, weekly coaching one-on-one. So I dived into that and we started working together. And I would say over the first six months, she started to get an influx of younger individuals that were different than her normal demographic, 16, 17, 18-year-old males who certainly weren't addicts, they were brought to her because there may have been one or two instances regarding substances, but it was really more behavioral and maybe some other maladaptive behaviors that were going on where the parents said, I don't know what the next step is here. I certainly don't think he needs to go to treatment, but we're out of our depth and we need to bring in some sort of additional support. So, it's almost like, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking it's almost like you you met yourself. Yes. You know, you met yourself right there. You see these young kids come in and you're like, oh, my gosh, they, <laughs> they, I know what they're going through. Yeah, spot on. Exactly. So since I was young and, and came from similar background and experience, we saw a lot of success with this where – Again, we didn't take the sobriety or abstinence recovery approach. We took the approach of, like you said, you know, I not only have I been through this, I, I went through this five years ago because I was 23. So I was going through it, you know, 17, 18. And 
I know what you're going through. And I can not only do I know that I continued down that path, and I didn't get the support that I needed. And it led to an existence of chaos and, and overdose and, and, and substance misuse. And, and that doesn't need to be you. So let me give you some education. Let me give you some support. Let's work together so that, you know, you're at this fork in the road. You can go down a different path that that doesn't require you to be abstinent. And you can go on to live a quote unquote normal young adulthood that may not be, you know, plagued with overdose and chaos like it was for me. Right. And and the youth prevention mentors, your mission statement is striking addiction before addiction strikes, right? So you're working on addiction mitigation. So let's talk about like like that because you've got these young people coming in who are, you know, they're they're ripe in that area where they're there's the real potential. They have some distress in their life. And if they walk into the wrong area, the wrong substance, the wrong, just like you, you know where that road is leading. So I want to talk about that and what that looks like and how do you help these these young people? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, to provide some context, after working with a couple of these young guys with Natasha, we had the light bulb moment where where we go, okay, we're working in this prevention space, this mitigation space. No one's really doing that. And that caused us to then form youth prevention mentors alongside a great psychiatrist, Dr. Kaminsky, with the mission to be striking addiction before addiction strikes. Uh, and, and, and the way we do that is really a, a full 360 multi-pronged approach. So as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, and I saw you you got sober very young as well. When working with young adults, you have to take on the family. Even if the young adult themselves is going through it, if you don't work with the family and you don't have that united approach, there is going to be gray areas. There's room for triangulation between the family members. So we will, what we'll do is we'll put together a team and it's all very bespoke as each, every individual is unique and then their family's needs are unique. Uh, we'll put together a team of a youth mentor who will be the one working with the young adults, kind of being his or her person. And then we'll also put together a family coach and we work, you know, alongside a really great clinician, Dr. Louise Stanger, who's kind of, you know, a renowned family coach and interventionist um, who, who works great with the parents in creating healthy boundaries, healthy dynamics in the home. And then we'll also put together, if there's not one already, a clinical team. So psychiatrist, psychologist to work with the young adult as they're, you know, we, we are not clinicians. We, we are boots on the ground. So, you know, if there are any needs for medications or therapy, you know, we will work alongside the clinician and, and take their advice in regards to that, but we, we really do want to create like a life team around the family so that they feel support right. on all angles and that there's that united approach of we all know what direction we're going and we're all being held accountable by our separate parties. Right. And, and addiction is a, is a family issue. You can't just separate it. There's, you know, that person who's struggling with that is impacted by all the people around them and, and vice versa. And it goes all around. What are some of the things like 
as I'm thinking, and maybe somebody's listening and they're a parent and they're out there, what, what are some of these signs of these young kids that might be struggling? How, what does a parent do? I mean, what do they start to see? Sure. Again, it, it, it really varies, but a lot of it, and it, and it's hard to tell because the nature of a teenager is generally a little withdrawn. You know, they, they, right. they get into their teenage years and it's not mommy and daddy, I love you. Let me talk to you. It's you don't know what I'm going through. I'm going to be kind of a little more reclusive, but certainly noticing a switch in the norm. So let's just say they're doing a certain way at school and extracurriculars and socializing a certain way at home. If there's a sudden downturn that can't be correlated to something that you can see, that's usually cause for concern. Or of course, if you're finding things, if there's liquor missing from the liquor cabinet, if you're smelling smoke or finding bags of, you know, mystery substances, of course that is red flags right there. But what we what we often urge is for parents not to make rash decisions in the sense that they may find something or notice that their son or daughter is engaging in smoking weed or drinking and we we don't want them to immediately say okay this is above our pay grade we need to send them away right because at a young age 16 17 they may not be an addict you know they may just be experimenting and going through something and to put them you know in a milieu of people where they get the stigma for better or worse that there's something different with me i'm i'm a drug addict and yeah. you know i'm not like everyone else it can do more harm than good. And then on the flip side, when they come home, the family hasn't done the work. They're going back to the same environment that was conducive to these maladaptive behaviors to begin with. So that's why we urge families, although, you know, this is not, you know, we work in tandem with treatment centers across the country and they're great. But, you know, we like to see us as that intermediary step before you do something, before they leave the home. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense too. I mean, it's a systems problem. It's the whole family system that has to has to work on this because my guess is maybe even like you, you're going through this pain, right? You were going through your pain. And even though your parents were loving, providing all these things for you, there might've been some ways in which you felt you couldn't reach out to them. Maybe not because they didn't love you, but it was just, the system wasn't set up or there was a flaw in the system that didn't help you like cross that and say, mom, dad, I need support, whatever mm -hmm. that is. Right. And it's not about love or care. It doesn't have to do anything with that. It's just, there's something not working and sometimes we don't know. And so a system approach I think is incredibly important, especially for these youth because yeah. they, they need to get that support right away when, you know, and shoot, I think those are hard years. You're going, your your hormones are changing. You're going through. Who am I? Where do I belong in this world? I mean, it's oh yeah. No, you, you, it's funny you mentioned the system because we we have a blog post on our website, kind of about the system, and it's called the inverse cult of adolescence. Um, so if you think of a cult, it's a triangle with the tip of the triangle kind of being the authoritative figure, and then everything trickles down from there. 
we find that with adolescence, the system is inverted where the point of the triangle is at the bottom and the group is actually the guru, the masses. And the unfortunate part about that system is that the masses are these young kids who don't really have experience or an education or awareness about what's good for them or yeah. kind of where to go. So it ends up being the blind leading the blind, but they don't want to reach out to the people that quote unquote have the experience because they're the they're not the enemy, but they're the authority figure. They're they're the mom and dad. So we are trying to bifurcate that through having these young mentors, these 25, 26, 27 year old mentors who have been through severe adversity, who are really viewed more as a peer so that they can kind of infiltrate that group at the top of the totem pole and say, hey, I've, I've been through what you're going through. And here are the tools that you know helped me get through it after the fact. And, and you don't need to quote unquote, live through what I did and, and you can go on to have a different sort of existence. Okay. So starting with the family, being able to get them all the skills that they need for their mental health. And what I was going to also say is that being able to connect with their pain or their angst or their hurt and let them know that it's, it's okay to talk about it, that this is normal. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to keep mm-hmm. it hidden. And I think also with like social media and Instagram, they see all these perfect pictures and they compare themselves to that. And it's like bringing humanity to it and say, look, it's normal to have these feelings. It's normal to be sad sometimes. It's normal to be hurt. It's normal to feel insecure. It's normal to feel uh, some shame sometimes. And like having someone that they can relate to that says, hey, that's okay. It's Mm -hmm. okay to have these feelings. It's okay to not feel perfect. It's okay to fall down. 100%. And we see that so much in society. And, and I, I've, I've written something about this where in society, our young adults, our teenagers, our, our kids, they, they receive tutoring and support for, for certain things, whether it be academics, whether it be sport. You know, they get extra help. And, and education around certain things. But when it comes to mental health and addiction, there's really not much in the way of that besides maybe a few school assemblies until it's too late, until yeah. it's present. So we, you know, in a way, like to think of ourselves as tutors for raising education and awareness to young adults about mental health and substance use. And you don't get the math tutor after you've failed out of math class. You get the math yeah. tutor when, you know, you're struggling a little, but, you know, there's room for improvement and, you know, you can still kind of work your way through it. So that's kind of where we want to live in that space of let's get the help before anything evolves into, you know, something very drastic where the sobriety portion is, you know, necessary and the abstinent portion for an 18-year-old is necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I look back in my own life, like you said earlier, I went into rehab when I was 17 years old. And I think it really saved me from being like a a full-blown addict, if that makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. I was young, I had, my brain was still adaptable, but I, I was, I feel like I was lucky in the sense that it gave me some skills at a very young age that I didn't have and that I needed. 
to be able to deal with anxiety, to be able to deal with depression. And that really, you know, in a way saved my life. I think if I hadn't had that, it would have been a, a completely different story for me. So I'm very grateful for that. But like, so I love your project because I, I think if, if you can get into those kids and be a tutor and give them the skills they need, I mean, it's the most valuable thing. I mean, it's great to be good at math, you know, I mean, that's nice. <laughs> but if you're, if you're mentally, you know, struggling with anxiety and depression, all the math, all being good at math isn't going to matter anything at all, right? You know, like we, we do all that or being good at a sport, but if you're miserable, you know, yeah, go get a tutor for your mental health. I love that idea. Yeah, and we're totally trying to dispel the stigma that's associated with it. And and you're not. There's nothing wrong for meeting with someone to kind of get some help for your mental health or struggles yeah. that you're going through with addiction. And and that's again the importance of the youth mentor because they're camouflaged in a way. They're not. You go meet with you know so and so therapist when the kid may not want to, but hey, go meet with someone who is kind of your peer and that is going to spark your attention because of a few stories they had when they were your age. And then you can kind of connect from there. We, we always see these young adults being more open to that. And then from there, the mentor can kind of guide them and saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm great to, you know, help you with some of the boots on the ground accountability stuff, but it seems like you should also kind of meet with this clinician to get some help for yeah. some of the deeper yeah. stuff so that they can kind of have their support in that and we can kind of tie it into the team. Right. You can, you can pull it all together and, and, and help them move through that process. And that could be overwhelming because like, if you don't know what services are out there, even as a parent, yeah, I mean, it's so hard. Well, what do I do? Where do I go? And if you have a coach or someone that can guide you and say, look, here's this option. Here's this possibility. This might be a good fit. This clinician's really good with these kind of problems. I think that becomes so beneficial to so many people. Yeah. 100%. Wow. Yeah. So this is what I like to do. If you listen to the podcast, we get closer mm -hmm. to the end, right? Yeah. If there is maybe someone out there, maybe a youth who's struggling, right? Maybe they're listening to this and you could tell them one thing. What would you want to say to that, that person? I would say, speaking from experience, there's more harm in waiting to reach out to, to get extra support than in not. Because the best case scenario, you reach out to a professional, myself, yourself, uh, to get some help. And turns out you don't really need it. And, you know, it was just a hiccup. Worst case scenario, things get really bad. And you're in a situation where you're saying, you know, I wish two years ago when so-and-so was 16, we had gotten them the proper help that they needed. Awesome. So go, go get the help, reach out, get it. Max, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind. Where can thank people you. find you? Where can they get more information about you? Sure. So we are on LinkedIn. We are on Facebook. Our website is youthpreventionmentors.com. We are on Instagram and we are nationwide and worldwide. So we have about a hundred mentors across the country. We work 
all over East Coast, West Coast. Uh, we have mentors in the UK as well. So if you or anyone you know is in need of some help, we are here to support in any way and be of service. Awesome, Max. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addictive Mind, sharing your story, sharing your wisdom, and, and giving back to everyone. Thank you, Dwayne. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can check out all of Max's information there and all the information about youth prevention mentors will be there as well. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Really appreciate that. And join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.